We've just heard the reading of our text words this morning from Leviticus chapter 1 and chapter 8. And I will read again what will be the main emphasis as we look through this whole passage today. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray now by the gracious and powerful and illuminating work of your Holy Spirit and to the praise of our Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of your great name, would you mightily and graciously bless this word as it goes forth to the salvation of souls and to the strengthening and the helping of your people presently and all the way to glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we've read this opening chapter of the book of Leviticus, which describes the first of five main offerings and sacrifices, we're reminded that the purpose of the book of Leviticus is, through types and shadows and signs, to declare this truth, that God is holy and righteous, and that the only way that guilty sinners can approach unto God is through Jesus Christ. This is the main theme of Leviticus. And in this passage, as God's presence has come to dwell in the tabernacle, as people could look there in the camp, there's that tent, that tabernacle, and there was the glory cloud of God's glory over the tabernacle, signifying God's holy presence. People knew that God's presence was there. This was a very good and glorious thing, that God was there in the camp. You can think about it like this. My uncle Wayne worked for years in Seneca, South Carolina at the Oconee Nuclear Station. That station powered much of the southeast. Millions and millions of people had electricity. Farms were powered by that station. You can imagine all of the the produce and the life-giving benefits of that nuclear station. People were kept warm in the winter and had air conditioning during the summer and And all the life-giving benefits of it. He said that during the years he worked there, he went into the reactor area five different times. Only five times. And he said that the station was under power, which means it was running at full capacity. And only at a certain time and a certain way could he and others enter into that reactor. And he talked about... The first time going in there, what what a scary feeling it was, but what an awesome experience it was to be there where all of that power is operating. But you also know that though a nuclear reactor can give great life-giving benefits by that great power source, If you're wrongly related to that nuclear reactor, it's the exact opposite. You will experience the destructive power of it. And there was an example of this in April, on April 23rd, or or April 26th of 1986. 
in Ukraine, then the former Soviet Union, about 65 miles north of Kiev and at the Chernobyl nuclear station. There was a team there working overnight and one of the reactors began to melt down. Fires broke out. Nuclear radiation began to fill the air. It was deadly to anybody exposed to it. And people living in the surrounding area were exposed to that dangerous nuclear material going into the air. The the wind began to catch that material and to spread it all across Europe. And some estimate that as many as 4,000 people died as a result. But the estimates are as high as over 100,000 people who may have died because of that one incident. In the coming years and decades, people who died because of some level of exposure. This is an example of the destructive nature, the destructive experience, if you would, if you're wrongly related to that nuclear reactor. But during that time when the meltdown began to happen, although it caused such widespread damage and disaster, it could have been much worse. There was a second problem that began to occur when nuclear material began to approach a large pool of water and it could have made a steam cloud explosion that would have blown up the other reactors and they say that it could have wiped out half the population of Europe. But there was a man, a shift manager named Alexander. He and his team, when others were evacuating the facility, they stayed there and exposed themselves to harm and they did what it took to help suppress and to help do what they could to contain that meltdown. Not only Alexander, the shift manager, but also three other workers. They called them the suicide squad because when those three men went back to the facility days later to try to help stop a second explosion, the officials told them, you probably will not survive, but your families will be taken care of. And those men, knowing that they may not return, put on wetsuits and went down under the ground, under that reactor, and waded through that water to approach and to find the water gauge to fix the problem. And they were able to prevent a further explosion. We know at least Alexander, the shift manager, died ten days later because of radiation exposure. And these men... Some of their end is unknown, though popular fiction in in movies and things have shown and depicted different things. Men who have researched it say that we don't know all of what happened to those three men, but they went in there on a suicide mission in order to save others. Here at the tabernacle in Israel, among the people of Israel, There's the good and the holy, life-giving presence of God. As long as they have God's presence with them, as long as they walk in obedience, God will bless them. God will protect them. But when they sin against God, God pours out His wrath and His judgment against them. And they experience the fire of His wrath. We'll see this later on with Nahab and Abihu, two sons of Aaron, two priests, as they approach God in a presumptuous way to go in and worship in a way that God has not commanded, 
fire comes out from the Lord and devours them. This is what happens to guilty sinners who are seeking to live in the holy presence of God. God is good and holy and His presence gives life and blessing to His people. But because of sin, we were wrongly related to God in Adam our father from that first sin of our first parents in the garden and all the way through human history. There's no way for us to stop it. There's no way for us to reverse it. But what we need, we need a substitute who can go in for us. We need someone who can do for us spiritually what those men at Chernobyl couldn't do physically. We need a representative to go into God's holy presence to absorb all of the fiery wrath of God for our sins. We need a perfect substitute to represent us to God so that we may live freely and in a state of pardon and forgiveness, in a state of righteousness, in the presence of a holy God and enjoy Him as our God. This is what we desperately need and this is what God declares to us in Christ throughout the book of Leviticus beginning with this first sacrifice, the burnt offering. I want to open this up to you today, this thought. Lay your hand on Christ as your burnt offering. Lay your hand on Christ as your burnt offering. We'll see it in four basic thoughts. We'll see the need for it, why you need to lay your hand on Christ. We'll see the meaning of it, what it means to lay your hand on Christ. We'll see the object of it. Who is it that you're laying your hand upon? Then finally, we'll see the outcome of it. What will be the outcome? What will be the result when you lay hands on Christ as your burnt offering? Let me show you your need to lay your hand on Christ as your burnt offering. As God is holy and righteous and good and cannot dwell with iniquity, this is why you as a guilty sinner need Christ as your representative. Many times when we hear that God is good, when when people today hear that God is good, they think, oh, God is good. God won't send me to hell. No, God will send you to hell precisely because God is good. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly holy. And it would be unjust if God didn't send guilty sinners to hell. It's exactly fitting. It's exactly what we deserve. And because of this, you desperately need, and I desperately need a substitute, a representative. Guilty sinners are endangered. We deserve to be burned up under the wrath of God. Scripture teaches us this throughout and that it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment that God will render to all men according to their works at that last day. This is God's perfect justice and we all deserve condemnation. We need to lay our hand on Christ and you do, dear friend, because you need atonement. You need your sins to be atoned for. You need to be brought back Literally, the word atonement, at one meant. You need to be brought at one with God. You need to be restored unto God, restored in fellowship. You need your sins to be washed away. Beyond this, you need acceptance from God. You need for God to accept you 
And the only way that God does this is when you're in Christ, His acceptable Son, His perfect, spotless, pure, and holy Son, and then you will be accepted by God. God will accept you and receive you as freely and fully as He does His own Son, Jesus Christ. And as I remind you of your need to lay hands on Christ, this is not just for you who are unconverted, but it's for every one of you dear Christians. Because we never stop believing on Christ. We never stop trusting on Him, in Him. And just as that first moment, when you first trusted in Christ and laid hands on Him by faith, you continue to trust in Him. And this will remind you of that. And by God's grace, will help you to keep on looking to Christ. And I remind you that as Christians, we need the Gospel. We need the Gospel of Christ just as much as when we first heard it. We need the Gospel of Christ just as much as the unconverted do. This is our great need to lay hands on Christ as our burnt offering. What is the meaning of it? What does it mean to lay hands on Christ as your burnt offering? Well, it, it speaks of repentance. Speaks of repentance and faith, but first repentance. When that Israelite would bring that sacrificial animal, bring that bullock or that lamb or that bird. Here in the beginning of the text, when he would bring that, that herd animal and lay his hands upon it, he is confessing and you are confessing, I am a sinner and I need this blameless animal as my representative. You are trusting and they were trusting by faith looking ahead to Christ. I need Christ because I am a sinner. I'm turning from my sins to Him. You can't hold an idol in your hand and and reach and lay your hand on that sacrificial animal at the same time. An old dear sinner, God calls upon you. God commands all men everywhere to repent, to turn from sin to Jesus Christ. And this is signified in the laying on of the hand. It involves a change of heart. He says, if anyone brings this sacrifice to me, It's implying that this person is leaving their sin with a plan not to return back to it again. And this is what true repentance is. It's not coming to church every Sunday so we can get some kind of indulgence and go live in sin again. And we got that over with and we'll do it again next Sunday. But rather, true repentance is the intent like Jesus told the woman taken in adultery when He told her at the end there in John 8, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's the intention of this offer, coming and asking forgiveness for his sin. The desire of your heart as you lay hands on Christ is to not return to that sin again. It involves repentance. The meaning of laying hands on Christ is not only repentance, but the other side of that, which is faith. That simply is trust in Christ. Trusting in Him as your sin bearer. The one to bear your sins as that Israelite laid hands on the sacrifice. It's as though their sins were transferred to that animal and then the animal dies the death they deserve. You're trusting in Christ. I trust you as the Savior for sinners. I trust in the the efficacy, the worth of your death on the cross. I trust in you as my high priest. You're placing your trust in Him as your sin bearer. 
You trust in Christ as your blameless representative. I'm guilty, but this animal is blameless, the Israelite would say. And the text teaches us you're laying hands on Christ who, unlike you, is sinless and holy and harmless and undefiled. And you're trusting alone in Him. You're you're not trusting yourself anymore. This is what Paul expresses in 2 Corinthians 5.21, speaking of Christ, for God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You trust in Christ as your sin bearer, as your blameless substitute. This is what it means. Turning from sin, trusting in Jesus Christ, this is what it means to lay hands on Christ. What is the object of your faith? Who is it that you're laying hands on? Well, in laying hands on Christ as your burnt offering, you're laying hands on an appointed sacrifice. He's an appointed sacrifice. In verse 1, this is God Himself who speaks to Moses and tells Moses, These words that are written down and that we have read this morning. This is God revealing the way for guilty sinners to approach unto Him. This is not man-made religion. This is God declaring His special revelation to us. Declaring the gospel in types and shadows to us. And this is why Peter Martyr Vermigli, the reformer, said that nowhere did Moses speak about the death of Christ more plainly than in the sacrificial laws. It's no accident that these different herd animals were of such a kind. Have you ever wondered why didn't they sacrifice things like snakes or frogs or whatever other animal? Why is it just the the ox or the sheep or the goat? I'll tell you why. Because that ox points forward to the the labors of Christ on our behalf. as As He would live and do all the work necessary in our place in His active righteousness. It was a lamb because it points to the blamelessness of Christ. And Isaiah 53 magnifies this. It was a goat, not as Christ is considered in Him but considered as we are in ourselves, guilty sinners. And throughout the New Testament, sinners are likened unto goats. This isn't by accident. Every bit of this is, is pointing to the greater sacrifice, the greater representative, Jesus Christ. It's no accident that we read in verse 3 that they are to offer it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. And this should remind us that Jesus Christ is that door. He's the only entrance to God. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus tells us. It's no accident that they were to sacrifice it on the north side, it tells us in verse 11. Why the north Well, the Psalms tell us about the city of Jerusalem where they didn't live yet. They weren't there yet. They were in the middle of the wilderness. They weren't to the promised land yet. They hadn't taken over Jerusalem. That wouldn't happen until generations later. But the Psalms tell us about the city of Jerusalem, that it's beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. In Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. This already is anticipating today that Jesus Christ as our sacrifice would die there at that city which is on the sides of the north and even there at the very north of the city. Outside the gates is where our Lord Jesus would die. 
He is an appointed sacrifice. He's the Lamb slain, as it were, before the foundations of the world. He's a substitutionary sacrifice. He's the blameless substitute for guilty sinners. In verse 2, when God says there, Leviticus 1-2, when He says, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering... In the Hebrew, he's literally literally saying when any man of you brings an offering. And that entails both men and women because it entails mankind. But literally, he says, if you read the Hebrew, if any Adam of you. It's the same word for our father Adam's name. If any Adam shall bring an offering. Every one of these Israelites that approached the tabernacle, that approached God, just like we are, were born in Adam. Adam is our representative. Adam is our father who plunged us into sin, as it were, who, who broke open that nuclear reactor and, and caused this meltdown of destruction to go into the entire human race. You can never approach God in Adam and be received by God. You must get into a different representative, and that is Jesus Christ. You need a new substitute, a new representative. This is why it tells us in verse 4, Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. You lay hands on Christ. It will be accepted. God will accept Christ on your behalf. The great exchange that Christ accomplished at the cross. Our sins for His righteousness. His misery for our blessedness. In verse 6, He tells us that they shall skin the burnt offering. This should make you think to the, the crucifixion of Christ where they stripped Him naked. They stripped Him of His robes there as He was suffering on the cross. And this should remind you that spiritually there at the cross, part of what Christ was doing was He was providing you spiritually naked and guilty sinner. He was providing you with the robes of His own righteousness to clothe you before God. And that's why Jesus tells one of the churches in Revelation, to you who overcome, you'll walk with me in robes of white. He provided that for you in His death and resurrection as your substitute. Oh, how we need Him as our substitute. Can you imagine what a fearful thing it would be to stand before God at the judgment? God, who Scripture says is a consuming fire. Can you imagine what fear surged through the hearts of those men at Chernobyl when that reactor was broken open and the radiation was pouring out and they approached that reactor, those three men, the suicide squad, going down underneath that reactor in the dark? Can you imagine the fear of approaching? You have no idea what kind of fear it will be when you stand, oh sinner, you stand before God at the judgment day. 
Heaven and earth flee away, Scripture tells us. And you'll stand before that great white throne. And the books are opened. And all of your works will be read out of those books. Everything you've hidden, everything you hope nobody finds out about, the deepest recesses of your heart and mind are going to be turned inside out and opened up before God, and you're going to be judged for every one of those works. Oh, what a fearful day, standing there with no excuse. Standing there all alone, your mom and dad, your Christian parents will not stand with you on the judgment day. Your pastor won't stand with you there. Your Christian friend won't stand with you. You'll stand there naked and alone and exposed before God Himself. Nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide. Oh, what a fearful thing. Oh, how you need this substitute. When you lay hands on Christ by faith and you trust in Him, you will not stand at the judgment alone, but you'll stand in Christ. And when God sees you, He will see the perfect righteousness of Christ. He will be pleased with you, and He'll invite you to enter in good and faithful servant. The judgment day, yes, your works will be rewarded, dear Christian, but all your sins have been washed away and you'll stand in Christ. As it were, you'll hide behind Christ. He will shield you and He will be your refuge in that day. Oh, trust in Him now. He's the substitutionary sacrifice. And dear Christians, this reminds us, since Christ is our substitute, since we have put off the rags of our sins and put on the robes of His righteousness. This reminds us as the apostles tell us throughout the New Testament to put off and to put on. To put off the old man. To put off sin. To put off your past lifestyle as we read this morning. And to put on Christ. This is a daily and a continually exercise by the Christian to put off sin and to put on Jesus Christ. And when you think of the glory of Him as your substitute, remember to strive And to work, as Paul said, by the very power of God working in you, to strive and to work to put off sin and put on Christ by faith. He's a substitutionary sacrifice. This is who you're laying your hand on by faith. He's a sinless and pure sacrifice. He's sinless and He's pure. We read in verse 3, Where God said, let him offer a male without blemish. And we read that in 1 Peter 1, that Christ is that male without blemish, a lamb without blemish. We read in verse 9 that once they have carved up that animal and they're sacrificing him, he tells us in verse 9, he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. This reminds us of the purity of our Lord Jesus Christ, both inward and outward. There to wash His inward parts, reminding us of the heart purity of Christ. Christ who never thought a, a bad thought, a sinful thought. Christ who never felt a bad sinful feeling. Christ who had, as, as the Apostle said of Him, John said of Him, in Him was no sin. Oh, what inward purity our Lord Jesus has. Outward purity, the walk of His life. Never did He 
do one sinful action. And when you trust in Him, He, by His Spirit, produces inward and outward purity in you, dear believer, to imitate Him and to walk in His steps. We need this pure sacrifice because we're so impure. Impure inwardly, impure outwardly. If we even totaled up just this past week and could think about if we could count every time we had a sinful feeling or a sinful thought, our inward impurity, if we could count up how many times did I speak, maybe my tone was angry, maybe I didn't necessarily say the wrong thing, but I said it in an angry way, or I should have spoke up and told the truth and I didn't, how many times in our actions, in our words, even this very week, if we could comprehend the sinfulness the impurity of ourselves both inwardly and outwardly, it would horrify us right now, but our Lord Jesus Christ is perfectly pure. When you lay hands on Him, you're counted in Him, and you're changed more and more into Him, His image. Because in salvation, He doesn't just represent us in justification. He does do that. He also sanctifies us, and He washes us. And this is why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, such were some of you, but you're washed. You're sanctified and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And now, dear Christian, because of this, walk in purity, strive after by faith and looking unto Jesus and in the power of His Spirit, strive after inward purity and purity in your actions until that day in glory when you'll be perfectly pure inwardly and outwardly forever, just like Christ. He's a sinless and pure sacrifice. Who is it that you're laying hands on when you lay hands on Christ? Well, He's a suffering sacrifice. This is a mortal suffering, a suffering unto death. In verse 5, He said that the offer shall come and kill it, kill that animal before the Lord. When that sacrificial lamb or bullock entered into the gates, into the tabernacle, there was no going back. There was a one-way trip. They were going to die there. This points us to our Lord Jesus Christ, who set His face as a flint toward Jerusalem to go there knowing He would die, and He went to that purpose and Went there for that purpose. For this purpose I came into the world, he said. As he goes there to suffer and die for us. And you can hear him on the cross as our Lord Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of these sacrifices, has been nailed there and has been hanged upon the cross as he cries out in the seventh cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He gives up his life. He lays it down for us. It's a mortal sacrifice. It was unto death. And this reminds us as Christians, as the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 3.16, that Christ is our example in this. By this we know love because He laid down His life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
as we remember the glory of our Lord Jesus laying down His life for us, it motivates us and it instructs us to love one another in Christ and to be ready to lay down our lives for each other. Lay down your life for one another, dear Christians. Be ready to. This was a thorough suffering. This suffering sacrifice experienced a thorough suffering. In verse 6, he said, He shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. You remember how Christ upon the cross suffered in His entire body, head to foot, the crown of thorns upon His head, and the blood ran down His brow, and the nails in His hands and His feet and His back had been plowed open by the whip, gave His back to the smiters. He had to suffer in His head because of all our wicked thoughts that we've had. He had to suffer in His hands because of all of our wicked deeds we've committed with our hands. He had to suffer in His feet because of all the wicked paths our feet have traveled. He suffers in His whole body and the agony is so great even before His suffering He's sweating great drops of blood in the garden, remember. Oh, what agony. Oh, what thorough suffering our Lord went through for us. And this reminds us as believers, as we remember His fourth cry upon the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the deepest agonies of His thorough sufferings. As we remember the glory of Christ in this, it reminds us as believers that God would have us to give over our entire selves to God. As Paul instructs us to give ourselves, to give our life as a living sacrifice to God, which is our reasonable service. God doesn't want part of you. He doesn't want one day or a few hours of one day a week. He wants your entire person to be given to Him with joy in Christ who suffered for you in his whole body. This suffering sacrifice was an intense suffering. It was an intense suffering that he experienced. In Leviticus 1.9, he told us, And the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. It was to all be burned up. This fire speaks of the intensity of the judgment of God due to us guilty sinners. And this reminds us of Christ's fifth cry on the cross. I thirst. Not just from dehydration, but because He was tasting the very flame of the wrath of God that we deserved. And in those intense sufferings upon the cross, In those three hours of darkness as Christ hung there, somehow, in three hours, that one man, Jesus Christ, was able to pay for the eternities and eternities 
that you would have had to spend in hell and I would have had to spend in hell under the fiery wrath of God and we could have never paid for our sins and somehow all of that was compacted upon Him in the space of three hours on the cross and somehow He suffered it all and He paid the full penalty for us in that short time. How on earth could He do that in such a short time? Well, the text here points us ahead As when we read concerning this flame and all of the sacrifice being burned up. And we read later of the sacrifice of the poor which was the birds. And that that bird, the priest was to take it and to tear it open by the wings. It's two wings to tear it open but not to... Not to tear it asunder. He wasn't to divide it completely. Just as much as that bird with those two wings was torn open but not divided completely. The reason that Christ could pay for our sin in such a short time, the reason He could pay for it at all, is because He who is truly man according to His Humanity is also truly God according to His divinity. One person with two natures united. Two natures united in one person forever. This is the only reason we are saved. And as we confess Christ, we distinguish the natures. We distinguish His Godhood from His manhood. We distinguish. But we do not separate. Because if we separate, then we're not even talking about the Christ of the Bible. The Christ that God reveals to us, the true Christ, is truly God. And it's not as if Jesus Christ came because of the wrath of God the Father and Jesus is coming to just appease the wrath of the Father. No, Jesus Christ, according to His Godhood, is that one same God that God the Father is. And it was His own divine wrath that He experienced at the cross according to His Godhood, His wrath according to His Godhood. And because He is truly man, He was able to do what God cannot do. And that is to suffer and die. He suffered in our nature. Our human nature united to His Godhead. And since He was God, very God, according to His divinity, He was able to do what no man could do. And that is to offer up to God a sacrifice of infinite worth. More than paying for all the sins of our world and 10,000 worlds like it, for all who would come to Him, there is no limit to the worth of Christ's atonement and His death because that one offering it is, according to His divinity, the infinite God. It was an intense suffering that He faced. He tasted the hell that we deserve. And this is the psalm of chapter 6, verses 8 to 13 that we read. Chapter 1 is the general instructions to the people about the burnt offering. Chapter 6 8 to 13 is the instruction to the priest about the same burnt offering. And the main theme of that passage that we read is 
the fire and the burning up of that sacrifice. It's repeated over and over and over in that passage. This reminds us of the intensity of his suffering. Not only is he the suffering sacrifice, but he's the atoning sacrifice. We read in verse 4, Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. This points us to the sixth cry of Christ on the cross. It is finished. He finished all the atonement that's needed for our pardon. He finished all the work that's needed for us to be credited with His perfect righteousness. There's no more for us to do. We cannot contribute to it. Simply lay your hand on Him and believe on Him. It was an effectual sacrifice. It was successful. God said it would be a sweet aroma to Him. It it repeats throughout the passage. It will be a sweet aroma to the Lord. Our sins are like a stench to God. And we know this this is language which is attributing human language to God. We know that God is spirit. God does not have nostrils. He doesn't have a body. But it's speaking of this truth that God is pleased with the offering and this implies that God is displeased with our sins and our sins are a stench as it were in the nostrils of God. And we need Christ as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. Christ also who, also who loved us and gave himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. When you lay hands on Christ now instead of smelling the stench of your sin... God, as it were, smells the sweet and pleasing aroma of the very righteousness of Christ. And He treats you in this way. It's an effectual sacrifice. It's a universal sacrifice. It's for Jew and Gentile, and it's for both rich and poor. In verse 5 and 11, He tells them to sprinkle the blood all around the altar... This is a gospel that would go to the four corners of the world. It's not just for the Jews. That's what John the Apostle meant in 1 John 2.2 when he said that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's not saying that unbelievers have their sins paid for. He's not talking about a universal atonement and everybody's going to heaven. But rather he is saying that Jew and Gentile people from all corners of the earth, from every tribe, tongue, and nation of people are saved by one way, and that is through Jesus Christ alone. The way Paul put it is, he's the Savior of all men, especially to those who believe. He's the Savior of all God's elect. And in the gospel, he's the Savior to all who trust in him, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your nationality. You know what the answer to what they now call racial reconciliation is? You know what the answer to it is? You know what the only answer is? Jesus Christ and His gospel. 
and our being united to God in Him and our sins atoned for by His blood, living together as His people, this is the only answer. He's the universal sacrifice. He's for both rich and poor. And if people were too poor to bring a herd animal, a bullock or a sheep or a goat, it says in verse 17, they could bring a bird. It tells us later on in the book that that's for the poor that can't afford a larger animal. He's a savior of the poor as well as the rich. All kinds of people. This is the meaning, the object of who you're laying your hands on. This is Christ, the burnt offering. What is the outcome of it? What happens when you lay your hand on Christ? What happens when you turn from sin to trust in Him? And you reach, as it were, the hand of faith and lay your hand on Christ. Well, these are four things that will happen. And for all you who are in Christ, this is what has happened. The first is you'll have atonement before God. In verse 4, it will be, the burnt offering will be accepted on His behalf to make atonement for Him. Dear Christian, you have been accepted before God. He has accepted Christ as your atonement. You couldn't be any more accepted by God than you are. On your best day as a Christian, on your very worst and most sinful day as a Christian, God has accepted you in Christ. And you know what this is like, dear child, when you're, you're guilty and you've disobeyed and your father disciplines you and you know what it is to see that look on his face when he's displeased with you and you're wrong with him, you're out of sorts with him, but you know what it's like, don't you? Kids. After the discipline is over and your, your dad tells you, he, he wraps those strong arms around you and he tells you, let's be reconciled. And you're reconciled to him and you're at peace with him. This is so much greater of a reconciliation with God through this atonement. It's peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll have acceptance with God. Is that sweet aroma ascended up to God. God will accept you as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ. You will have ascension to God as Christ ascended to God. You will ascend to God. And when He tells them to burn the offering, literally in the Hebrew, turn it into smoke. Turn it into smoke as they laid that sacrifice on the altar and it burned up and that smoke went upward and ascended up. Just as Christ after His resurrection and after the 40 days of infallible proofs, just as Christ ascended to God, you will ascend to God and live in His presence in perfect joy forever. So we sang in the 24th Psalm and that great question that the book of Leviticus is answering, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord and who shall dwell in His holy place? You lay your hands on Christ and He's your representative. He is that King of glory that we sang about the 24th Psalm. Lift up the gates, lift up the everlasting gates and the King of glory shall come in. And after His resurrection and when He ascended back to heaven, Christ has entered into that heavenly holy place and you will enter in in Him those who have laid your hand on Christ. And meanwhile, for now, 
you have freedom unto God. Not only atonement before God, acceptance with God, ascension to God, but you have freedom unto God, freedom from sin to live holy lives for His glory. This is how the Apostle Paul applies this in Ephesians chapter 5. He spends seven verses and then far beyond this unpacking the implications that Christ is that offering of sweet-smelling aroma before God. And this is what we're to do about it. He tells us that we're to live for God's glory as imitators of Christ in Ephesians 5.1. Imitators of God, as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. What does that look like? Since Christ is our sacrifice and now we're to live in imitation of him, what does that look like? Paul tells us that we ought to live holy in body and soul as Christians. He says in verse 3, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once even be named among you as is fitting for saints. God calls you to live in holiness of body and soul. Holiness in your speech. He says in verse 4, Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. And then he warns us and reminds us in Ephesians 5, 5, For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. A holy life, holy in body and soul, in our mouth and what we say, the way we think, This is the goal for the Christian. This is God's will for the Christian because Christ is our burnt offering. This is how we are to live for His glory. You can imagine those people that lived around the Chernobyl nuclear reactor. They heard the the news of those men who entered into the reactor on their behalf who were willing to lay down their own lives for them. If they heard of Alexander, the shift manager, who who died 10 days later from the radiation exposure because he exposed himself to danger that they may be saved. Imagine when they hear about this and they're able to live their life. It should be every time they think about that man. Every time that they remember his sacrifice, that they live in appreciation of the life they have. We hear of Christ who has done all this for us in the gospel. Oh, how we ought to live for His glory every day. And I want to ask you now, every one of you, we've seen what it means to lay hands on Christ as your burnt offering. I want to ask you, are you laying hands on Christ? Are you laying your hand on Christ as your burnt offering? Are you turning from sin? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone? You might say, well, how would I know if I am? I'll tell you one one way you can know. Let me ask you this. When your conscience bothers you about your sin and guilt, that's what this is all about. They're they're sinful. They're guilty. They need to approach God. God deals with that through this offering pointing to Christ. When your conscience bothers you about your sin and guilt, what do you do? 
Where do you go? That'll tell you if you're laying hands on Christ or not. I want to ask you, when you're bothered by a guilty conscience, do you try to hide from it? Do you try to bury it and just forget about what you've done? Do you try to run from it? Get away from it? Do you try to make excuses? Oh, it's just my DNA. It's just, uh, you know, my parents raised me a certain way. Or this influence happened in my life. Do you make excuses for it? That's not laying hands on Christ. Do you drown it? Do you experience guilt? Do you drown it with distractions? Do you crank up the music and you can't even get into the vehicle without having the music cranked up all the time because you can't stand to be alone for five minutes? You can't stand for things to be quiet because you start thinking and that guilt comes up? Do you drown it with social media? Do you drown it with with entertainments of whatever kind you could imagine? Do you, do you seek to keep yourself occupied and busy all the time? Maybe, maybe workaholism, uh, working, taking on more work, busyness. Maybe certain friendships. And you're never able to come face to face with your sins. There's nothing wrong at all with many of these things in their right place. But if you try to use these things to, to drown and to, to bury the guilt of sin, you'll, you'll never escape it, and you're not laying your hand on Christ. And even as believers, though we're in Christ eternally, we can lose the joy and the subjective enjoyment of the benefits of Christ. But oh, when you come face to face with your sin, and you take it to Christ and you lay hands on Him, you confess it to God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, God promises when we confess our sins. That's how you know you're laying hands on Christ. You're you're coming to Him with your sin. You're opening up your sin to Him. Proverbs says, He that covers His iniquity, God will uncover it. You keep covering up your sins, God will uncover it on the judgment day, dear sinner. But you uncover it before God. And Christian, every day, uncover it before God and come to God in Christ, laying hands on Christ. And oh, what cleansing, what joy will be yours in Him. I want to ask you who are not laying hands on Christ, who are not trusting in Christ, why are you not laying your hand on Christ? Why not? Well, you might say it's an empty hand. I I don't have anything to bring. He doesn't expect you to bring anything. Lay your empty hand on Christ. He has all the fullness you need, and He alone has all the fullness you need. You might say, well, it's, it's a weak hand. If I were a Christian, I wouldn't be able to contribute anything. Lay your weak hand on Christ, the weak hand of faith, even if it's a weak faith, just like that woman who touched the hem of Christ's garment and she was immediately healed. The moment you touch Him, even with a weak faith, you'll be saved. You might say, well, I can't lay hands on that blameless sacrifice of Christ because it's a filthy hand. You don't know how filthy, how guilty I am and how many times I've sinned. How badly I've sinned. No, no. But this blameless Savior invites you now, lay your hand on Him, your filthy hand. He will cleanse you. You might say, well, I can't lay my hand on Christ because it's a failing hand. 
full of sinful failures. Yes, but he's an unfailing Savior for failing sinners. Lay your hand on him. You as a Christian might say, I can't lay hands on Christ because it's a backsliding hand. But he receives backsliding Christians just like he receives unconverted sinners. Lay your hand on him by faith. He's faithful, old backslider. Lay hands on him. Get that sin out in the open before him. Get it behind you and taken care of. You might say, well, I can't lay hands on him because I'm too short-handed. How can I reach all the way to Christ? Isn't he so far away? Well, I remind you, dear believer, that, or dear sinner, Christ has come to you. He's come to you now in the preaching of the gospel. He has come to you by His Spirit. And Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.17, And He, that is Christ, came and preached to you who are afar off and are now near. Jesus Christ never traveled and preached in Ephesus during His earthly ministry. And yet Paul said, Jesus came and preached to you. What does he mean? He means that when the Word of God, when the Gospel is preached, Christ Himself comes to you by His Spirit. Christ Himself gives this message to you now. And you imagine as that Israelite reaching and touching that sacrifice. There it is. How close was that? That's so close they could reach out and touch the sacrifice. Christ is closer to you than they were to that sacrifice because Romans tells us in Romans 10 that the word is near you even in your mouth that if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God is raising from the dead, you shall be saved. Christ is so near no, you can't reach out to touch him, but he's come to you. Lay your hand on him and be saved. Imagine there at Chernobyl, in the Ukraine, if one man could have volunteered to go into that reactor, absorb all the radiation, and everybody else would be saved. It didn't happen, but imagine if it could have turned out that well. Imagine if that one man could turn back the clock, reverse all the effects of it, and far greater. Well, Christ has done infinitely greater than this. We've seen Him going in, as it were, to the fiery oven of the wrath of God there at the cross, paying the price as our burnt offering, setting us free from sin, those who lay our hand upon Him, and for eternity we will enjoy the reversal of the effects of sin and Christ leading and taking us to a higher and a more glorious state than we can even imagine and that Adam ever knew before the fall. Christ has done all this and more. Lay your hand on Him as your burnt offering. Amen.